0: Brush up your Shakespeare, start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare, and no women, you'll wow. Just to claim a few Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSEF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, every Sunday at 8 and 8. Archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, shannonjriley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSEF, every Sunday, 8 to 8. You're listening to ksef additional broadcast in topeka brought to you by 785 magazine learn more at 785 live.com and now it's time for shannon shakespeare sunday with your host my daddy shannon riley Hello, 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 and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75 Live. Thank you, my dear BB, for introducing me. It's my pleasure to come to you once again, as I do every Sunday on the 8th, to talk about the works of William Shakespeare, the greatest playwright to have ever lived. My name is Shannon Riley. I am not a Shakespearean scholar. I do not claim to be a Shakespearean scholar, but I do claim to be someone who really genuinely loves the works of William Shakespeare. I've read them all, I read them all all the time, it's my passion, and 75 is nice enough to allow me to come on the air once a week to talk about his great works. Hey, before I get into today's play, I need to stop and recognize some very amazing people. Last week, I had the pleasure of being involved in a really remarkable production, the inaugural production of the Lady Shakes Company's *Midsummer's Night Dream, an all-female cast that I got to direct in this great show, *Midsummer's Night Dream, that we did in Noto, North Topeka's Arts District. It was just a real pleasure. I had a great time, I was really touched by the production. I hope this company goes on to do a lot more really exciting things in the years to come, and I'm certain they will. And it was really a pleasure of mine to be involved in the inaugural production. I also want to thank KSEF, who came out, helped support us with sound, so that people could be heard while they were performing Shakespeare. And I want to thank Rebecca Rajetsky who worked the sound that day for us because it was really needed. But that the whole company was really terrific. And we had around 200 spectators who came down to North Topeka to see a free Shakespeare in the park. You can't get much better than that. So I want to thank everybody who came out. I want to thank the ladies who did it. And I want you guys in the Topeka area to keep your eyes peeled for the next production of the Ladies' Shakes Theater Company. I expect great things. All right. So today, as you know, I've been on this quest to try and talk about each one of Shakespeare's plays one episode at a time, try to dive into them as much as I can in a half hour period or with my limited intellect. But today, we are still in Shakespeare's most prolific period, which is the late 1590s, around 1596 to 1599, even into 1601 actually, Shakespeare was producing some of his greatest works. And producing more plays than in any other period that he was writing. And we're closing in on some of the finals of these really massive plays. And today, our focus is on a play by the name of Julius Caesar. Now, it was the tragedy of Julius Caesar, and it really kind of reads more like a history. In fact, it's more historically accurate than most of his history plays were in treating English history. Now, Shakespeare does the same thing with Julius Caesar's life as he does with his other histories. He condenses time he moves action around a little bit so that it fits his main treatise and where he wants to go. But in all actuality, he gets pretty close to the story that really leads to the death of Julius Caesar. By the time the play starts, as a matter of fact, Julius Caesar is already a renowned figure, a successful army general, a successful politician. And that's the thing that drives the story of this play, this fear of someone becoming so popular among the populace that he makes himself a dictator and the fear that that could lead to. This is a really universal theme in this play. Julius Caesar was one of Shakespeare's most successful plays during his life. It was never published during his life. It was only published in 1623 for the first time when it was published in the first folio. But it was produced a lot, and what is also remarkable about it is that there were several plays already about Julius Caesar that existed in the Elizabethan theater canon, but Shakespeare's play topped them all, wiped them all out as a matter of fact. It was one of the first shows too that Shakespeare did at his new theater, The Globe Theater, which was a big grand theater, the largest theater on the banks of the Thames. And it was really the place where Shakespeare's greatest immortal classics had their first home. And this is one of them. Julius Caesar is a highly quotable play. It's one of the most quotable plays he has written. For instance, I'm going to start doing some quotes, but I'm going to let my boy introduce it. So, Finn, what do you got to say? And now, the Shakespeare Quote of the Week! That's right, Shakespeare's quote of the week. And it starts of course with one of the most famous quotes from Julius Caesar, comes from a soothsayer in act one, scene two, who says, beware the Ides of March, of course. Then there's also this great quote that has been used in multiple movies and in popular vernacular and in books. And that is, men at times are masters of their fates. The fault, dear Brutus is not in our stars, but in ourselves. The fate is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Very classic quote. I also like the quote, Jan Cassius has a lean and hungry look. He thinks too much, such men are dangerous. That's Caesar, Act 1, Scene 2. But Casca has a line that we still use today. And that is in Act 1, Scene 2, but for my own part, it was Greek to me. And then there's Caesar's great quote in Act 2, Scene 2. A coward dies many times before their deaths. The valiant never tastes death but once. Great quote. Anthony says in Act 3, Scene 1, cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. And of course, there's that famous quote from Mark Antony in Act 3, Scene 1, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. So, that's a lot of quotes. I could could go on and on. Oh, I I also have to mention this one. This is one I really love. Mark Antony, Act 3, Scene 2. The evil that men do lives after them, the good is often interred with their bones. <laughs> Ain't that the truth. So there are some really great quotes from Julius Caesar by uh, William Shakespeare. It's a it's a fun play to read, but i got I just got to be honest with you. And this is Shannon talking. For me, Julius Caesar, as well as Antony and Cleopatra, they're just two plays that I just don't gravitate towards. It's not that they aren't well written. They're beautifully written plays. I guess I just get put off by them by some reason. There's this more of a connection to me, to the stories of Hamlet, or King Lear, or Othello, or Macbeth. I can somehow wrap my brain around them a little bit more, feel more pulled into those stories than I do the Roman stories, and that's probably just Shannon. But we're going to go through this play now. I'm going to give you a little bit of a scenario, and we'll talk about this play. As I said, it was incredibly popular in his time, and the play was produced many, many times, but they didn't publish it giving a good sign that they didn't want anyone else to have this particular play now it opens in act one with the fact that julius caesar has just come back from a massive victory abroad again he is a hero and he is treated with a hero's parade the people of the street general citizens of rome love caesar he is triumphant in his return from war and on his way to the arena for public games, he is approached by his protégé, Mark Anthony, who takes part in heaping praise upon Caesar. But as they're on their way to these games, they're stopped by the soothsayer, who says, Beware the Ides of March. A quick foreshadowing of what is to come. Now, fellow senators... Keys, Cassius, and Marcus Brutus are suspicious of Caesar. They're worried about his reactions to the power that he now holds in the Republic. He is so powerful that he, they believe there is nothing they could ever do to stop him if they ever needed to, and they fear he will indeed become emperor. He's like a god to the people, and that's scary to the fellow members of his Senate. Now Cassius, who is a successful general himself, is very jealous of Caesar for his success on the battlefield. But Brutus, he remains the more practical person. He is balanced throughout the course of the play. And he's very good at seeing the good and the bad in Caesar throughout the whole play. This is the gift that Shakespeare has that I've talked about before. He writes stories where it can go either way. And in fact, that's one of the things about Julius Caesar. A director can really push it to who is the villain and who is the hero. Is Caesar a dangerous wannabe dictator? Or is he a man misunderstood and betrayed by his friend because they fear his power? It is so deftly written, so brilliantly settled on that middle line that a good director can tell the story and narrate it to their point of view, whichever way they want to go. It is a tough nut to crack when you come across Julius Caesar as to which side you want to be on. The other thing that's startling is Julius Caesar here, who is the name of the play, has one-fourth the lines Brutus has. And it begs the question, who's the protagonist and who's the antagonist? Is it Caesar the antagonist because of his desire for power? Or is it Brutus who desires to cut Caesar off before he can become that god among men? Such great questions in this play, such great writing, but still at the same time, it's always been a play that seems a little bit aloof to me. The conspirator Casca joins our company, and he enters to tell Brutus of a ceremony that was just held by the plebeians, where they offered Caesar the crown three times, three times, and three times he refused it. But the conspirators are not comforted by this, because it means the Probrians are serious and they really do want to make Caesar their emperor. In act two, Cassius, the other conspirator Casca, and their allies plant false documents to manipulate Brutus into joining in their plan to remove Caesar. Brutus doesn't know what to do. He's suspicious of the documents, but he also suspicious of what if they are correct. And when Cassius and Casca visit him that night, they convince him to join in their plan to kill Caesar. But Brutus is so conflicted, He doesn't even confide in his dear, devoted wife, Portia. This is a different Portia, by the way. This is the other thing that's always kind of bothered me about this play. Up until this point, you've seen Shakespeare gravitating towards and starting to write really powerful women, like Portia from Measure for Measure, or Beatrice from Much Ado About Nothing. Bright, independent, strong women. The women in Julius Caesar are pretty weak. They're pretty forgotten. They're on the side. Portia simply means very little to Brutus. He doesn't even confide in her. And Caesar's wife, Caprina, is completely ignored when she begs him not to go to the Senate. There's a minor role these women have in this play. It's a very male-dominated play. And that feels less balanced to me. But going on, let's move on with Act 2. Now, Brutus and Cassius and Casca have agreed that they're going to kill Caesar the next day when he visits the Senate. That day happens to be the 15th of March. Caesar's wife, Calpurnia, wakes up that morning and begs Caesar not to go to the Senate. She had visions in her dream, and she fears the portents of overnight storms means someone is about to die, and she fears that is indeed Caesar. Caesar blows it off. He says she's just overwhelmed, worked up, and superstitious, and he heads off for the Senate. Caesar, by Act 3, has reached the Capitol, and each conspirator confronts him and stabs him. This is Act 3, Scene 1, and our main title character is killed, the final blow being given by Brutus, where Caesar utters his famous phrase, et tu, Brute. But imagine that, you're killing off your title character in Act 3. It's not the last time we're going to see him, by the way, but it is pretty startling when you kill off your title character when the play is just now at the halfway point. Now right after the death of Caesar, they decide, the conspirators decide they've got to address the public and get them on their side, and they decided that Brutus, being a hero himself and a great orator, should be the one to address the public. So he agrees to do it, and they tell him he should be the only one who speaks, and yet he is persuaded by Mark Antony to let him speak after he is done. This will be his downfall. They take the bloody cloak that Caesar was dressed in, they show it to the public, and they confess that indeed they killed him. But Brutus convinces the audience that they had to kill him for the sake of the democracy, for the sake of everything they hold dear. And the public is completely on his side by the time he finishes speaking. Suddenly it looks like the conspirators are going to get away with the death of their basically king. And then Mark Antony speaks. He says, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. And he goes on to question everything the conspirators have said. Reminds the crowd that they voted to make him emperor three times. And three times Caesar refuses it. He even pulls out Caesar's will and reads that Caesar would, on his death, leave public land and money to each Roman citizen. (laughs) That is it for Brutus and company. They have to flee the city as the crowd grows into a murderous riot and they force them to run, setting up another civil war in another Shakespeare play as the forces gather in Act 4 to face each other on the battlefield. So we're a little over halfway through our wonderful play, Julius Caesar. We're going to come right back and talk about it on the second half of Shannon Shakespeare Sunday in just a moment. Thank you all for tuning in. Come right back as we finish Julius Caesar after this short break. Right here is where I would say, now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. Hello, hello again, and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare's Sunday, Act Two, as we're talking about Julius Caesar. Once again, I'm Shannon Riley, and it's my pleasure to have you listening in as we talk about this great play. Say, if, if you'd like to see good versions of Shakespeare's plays, the BBC has a great series of plays, completely uncut, so you get the whole play experience. And most are available on YouTube. You can also order the discs. I, I have the full DVD series at home, because I'm a freak. But if you'd like to see any of them, you can find them on YouTube but it's the BBC's Shakespeare recordings, and they are absolutely wonderful. Check them out. Some are kind of old. They've been around since the 70s, but it's completely uncut. And as I've always said, hearing Shakespeare is so much better than reading Shakespeare. It brings the words to life for you, particularly when given by people who know how to speak that language. All right, having said that quick commercial, here we are into Act 4 of Julius Caesar. Brutus and Cassius... They've all gathered their armies and they're preparing to lead forces against Mark Antony, who is now joined forces with Caesar's great nephew, Octavius, and a man called Lepidus. Away from Rome, they go into a fight. Brutus and Cassius are filled with doubts about their future. They're fighting over whose forces should get paid more money, how they're gonna divide Rome after their success, if they really think they're going to have success. But finally, they make amends and they prepare to engage Antony's army at Philippa. Brutus receives word at this point that his own wife has committed suicide in Rome. He takes this news very stoically, even almost dismissively. And he goes to bed to prepare himself for the battle the next day. And in the night he's visited by Caesar's ghost. Great Caesar's ghost. And he appears before Brutus and he says, I will see you tomorrow in Philippa. Brutus again takes it stoically. He's very pragmatic in this whole play. And decides however this turns out is how it was meant to turn out and he goes to sleep. Now in Act 5 we lead up of course to the battle itself and in the battle it seems like the republicans led by Brutus are going to win but when they see Cassius' messenger horse overtaken by the enemy Cassius fears that his worst has come and he gets his servant to help him commit suicide. After finding Cassius' body Brutus himself is certain that they are finished and he throws himself on his own sword committing suicide. Of course this leads Mark Antony to come upon their bodies triumphant in the battlefield and what does he do? He praises Brutus as being the noblest Roman of them all and orders a formal funeral for them before he and Octavius return to rule Rome. And that's how the play ends. Again this idea of who is really the hero and who is not. Who is worthy of being praised and who is not. This is the story a director has to try and thread. He or she has somehow find a way to tell this story honestly and even-handedly so the audience leaves with their own idea. But this is not how this play is always done. Matter of fact, I've seen it produced twice and in both times there was a concerted decision by the director who was the villain and who was the hero. Now, there's some very remarkable things about Julius Caesar, other than the fact that Brutus speaks four times the amount that Julius Caesar does in the play. There's also, as I mentioned, a complete lack of women's roles. And there's certain anachronisms that happen in the play. He has a clock, for instance, that blares out in the distance. The Romans wouldn't have had clocks. He has Caesar wearing an Elizabethan doublet as he returns to the Senate. He wouldn't have worn a doublet. He wouldn't have even known what a doublet was. But the other thing that is remarkable about this is Julius Caesar and Hamlet and Henry V and As You Like It are often put together because the type of language used in the play, the vocabulary, the syntax, how the sentences are formed, are all so related. It's really what ties Shakespeare into a time and helps him date when some of these plays were done. There's also some very anecdotal evidence. There's mentions in some diaries and also in some public writings about when plays were published and as well as when plays were seen and played upon the stages. There's a performance that is noted in 1599 of Julius Caesar by someone by the name of Thomas Platter the Younger, who lists at seeing it in the fall of 1599. But there are also some things that relate more to the Elizabethans and why Shakespeare might have written Julius Caesar. And that is what's happening in the palace at this time, Queen Elizabeth is getting old very old. She has no successor, she never married, she has no children, and no one has been named to take her place on the throne. This is preoccupying the lives of everyone who lives in England. And that's not an overstatement. The queen, whoever sits on the throne, has such a vast control over your life for these Elizabethans, that they are in great fear of who should possibly take the throne. Even worse, if no one's name a successor, there could be a civil war to name who that person would be. Shakespeare might have been writing Julius Caesar to speak of these fears that Elizabethans were having and the danger that could come if it had grown to a civil war. It's very possible there's an abject lesson here that Shakespeare is trying to get across to his public. Please, everybody, keep a calm head in the days ahead. It is believed that by the time Shakespeare had written this play, that Queen Elizabeth herself had foregone any public appearances for quite some time. And there were even rumors that she could possibly already be dead. So this fear that one day that queen would go and be replaced by an unknown element was ever present in their lives. Then there's the fact that this play is so unique in how it treats its protagonist and antagonist. Since you don't ultimately really know Who is the driving force of the play? Certainly, there's an argument to be made that it's Caesar. He's the one we're all worried about, right? He is the one who could possibly lead us into an authoritarian government. They fear Caesar. And Caesar's actions certainly dominate the play. But then he's dead. He's dead by act three, scene one. The play's not even half over and he's dead. So is it Brutus? Is Brutus the antagonist? Is he the one that's driving the force of the play? Certainly it's Brutus that the conspirators need in order to kill Caesar, but he does it because of what Caesar is doing. And Brutus himself is even doubts his reasoning at times. And then there's Mark Antony. Mark Antony who proves himself to be a friend of Caesar's and a friend of Brutus. This man who claims to see and understand why the conspirators feel they must do what they do. And then he publicly denounces them and leads them to their destruction. Maybe he's the real antagonist. Maybe he's the one pulling the strings behind it all. This triumphant of three people who might be the evil element, that driving force of the play, leads this play to be one of the most questionable and most mutable by directors. It also drove it to be the most popular after the Restoration. You see, when the Puritans took control and abolished the Kings of England after this English Civil War, theaters were shut down. They were immoral, they were disgusting, the things that they did were wrong, and I take personal joy in the fact that what I do for a living would have upset a Puritan. Nevertheless, when the theaters came back, one of the first playwrights that came back was Shakespeare, and one of the first plays that came back was Julius Caesar. But what is remarkable about Julius Caesar is it was not adapted. It was treated as Shakespeare wrote it. By that I mean... Nearly everyone of Shakespeare's plays for almost 100 years after his his return to the stage had elements that were rewritten, re-scripted, re-sculpted, characters introduced, characters taken away by theatre professionals of that period. Caesar was not. Caesar was left alone. It was unadapted. It remained the work of William Shakespeare. And to this day, it's continued to be highly popular. Now, as I said, its first performance was probably around 1599 on the Globe Theatre. It was performed, we know, at the reopening of the Restoration Era in 1672 in a performance right before the King himself. But there are other notable performances, and that's where it gets kind of fun. In 1864, Edwin and John Wilkes Booth, yes that John Wilkes Booth made the only appearance on stage together in a benefit performance of Julius Caesar on November 25th, 1864 at the Winter Garden Theater in New York City. A lot of people forget this about John Wilkes Booth but John Wilkes Booth and his brother Edwin Booth were both very prominent actors of their period and were famous for their Shakespearean productions. These two people performed the play Julius Caesar about the assassination of a tyrant At least that's how they presented it. And, of course, John Wilkes Booth went on to do exactly that, assassinate a man who he believed was a tyrant. I think that's rather fascinating that John Wilkes Booth, just a short time before he kills Abraham Lincoln, performs the play Julius Caesar. I think it would have been more interesting if he played Brutus, but his brother Edwin played Brutus. John Wilkes played Mark Antony. There was another, I found this also fascinating. In 1926, there was a very elaborate production that was done for the Actors Fund of America at the Hollywood Bowl. They had over 300 gladiators. 300 gladiators appeared in the arena in the Shakespearean play. It was one of the largest productions of any stage play in known existence. It was fascinating. I would have loved to have seen that. Caesar himself arrived being pulled by six white horses on a chariot onto a stage that was the size of a city block. (laughs) I would have loved to have seen that. Then in 1937, here's another great one, the Mercury Theater with a famed Orson Welles performed Julius Caesar. But what they did in this play in 1937 was they dressed in uniforms that portrayed fascist Italy and Nazi Germany, drawing specific analogy between Caesar and the fascist leader Benito Mussolini. Now you can tell from such a a list of actors and and the wardrobe the side that Orson Welles seemed to fall on with his Mercury Theater production certainly meant to portray that Caesar himself was a fascist. And that shows the direction he would have taken that play as well. But what I think is most startling reference of Julius Caesar happened much, much sooner than all of those performances. Julius Caesar was referenced in Shakespeare's own play, Hamlet, written in the same year. Prince Hamlet, played by the same actor who played Brutus, who of course would have been Richard Burbage, is talking to Polonius in the play Hamlet. Polonius gives a line, I did act Julius Caesar. I was killed in the capital. Brutus killed me. It is a great reference to a play previously written by William Shakespeare where John Hemmings, who played Polonius and Caesar, references Richard Burbage, who played both Hamlet and Brutus, and Polonius himself is about to be killed by Hamlet when this line is given. It's just, it's just so, such clever reference that Shakespeare himself even brings up his own play, Julius Caesar, in his greatest play, Hamlet. And that brings me to my closing statement, and that is, next week we hit on Shakespeare's greatest play, Hamlet. Oh my goodness. I, I've been looking forward to talking about this play since I started this entire project. I'm terrified if I can do it justice, and I really am worried that I'm not gonna be able to do it in one single episode. So, as I close out this week and say thank you for tuning in to Shannon Shakespeare Shunday. I really appreciate everyone tuning in and following this exploit. Next week, come back and see me because next week, we take on the big boy. Probably the most perfect play ever written. The play that is most celebrated in theater today. William Shakespeare's Hamlet, The Prince of Denmark. Oh, I can't wait. Thank you all for tuning in this week and go out and enjoy some Shakespeare, if you can. And remember, until we see each other again, Keep it barred to the bone. Bye-bye.